1: the concerns with nuclear, there are a couple of them. I mean, there's obviously safety is an issue as demonstrated by Chernobyl and Fukushima. On the other hand, you know, climate change is 100% certain to happen. And, you know, there are all these other problems with fossil fuels. So in my view, I think that risk is one that I think is worth taking.
2: Welcome back to The Andy Roe Show. Professor Andrew Dessler is a world-renowned climate scientist who wrote the book on modern climate change. The professor studies both the science and politics of climate change. He's well known for his theories on energy and how we can prevent a global catastrophe. But before we get started, make sure you've gone and got yourself some AG1 by Athletic Greens at athleticgreens.com forward slash Andy. I've been taking AG1 for about five months now. I started taking it to make sure that I was getting all the vitamins and minerals that I needed each day, because although I want to be healthy... I can't always be bothered making the effort. The founder, actually, of Athletic Greens created AG1 because he was experiencing a ton of gut health issues and ended up on this complicated supplement routine to recover. And it was costing him around $100 a day. That's New Zealand money, so it's probably about 50 quid. He created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to create an optimal nutritional routine on your own. And to make it easy athletic greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin d and five free travel packs with your first purchase all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash andy i'll put the link in the synopsis to this episode as well so you can take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance and you'll be supporting this podcast as well by doing so i hope you enjoyed the episode Andrew Dessler, thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
2: How bad is the world? Let's just let's just start there. Is it is it ruined? Can we save it?
1: Oh, we can definitely save it, but we don't have a lot of time left to really avoid uh, the worst impacts of climate change. We definitely are in a position where we can we can we can fix this. I mean, the important thing for your audience to know if they if they remember anything else, or if they remember nothing else, this is what I hope they remember, and that is that. You know, climate and energy is not a scientific problem. You know, we understand climate change. It's not a technical problem. We know how to generate energy without releasing greenhouse gases that are causing climate change. It's a political problem. It's politicians who are beholden to fossil fuel interests. It's the war in Ukraine. It's all of these political problems that we have to solve in order to transition the world uh, to one that isn't whose climate is not changing due to humans.
2: It's a hard one to solve the political one, isn't it? Because they're often backed by the big energy companies that are into fossil fuels. Am I right?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, energy is a $8 trillion a year business. So if you think those guys are going to quietly say, okay, we'll stop making trillions of dollars a year, uh, they're not going to do that. They're going to fight tooth and nail, just like the tobacco companies did in the 60s, uh, to protect selling their product. Because if the world ends hundred years. Uh, that's really not as important as what their shareholders get next quarter.
2: The, you mentioned the tobacco companies. They used a, a similar sort of tactic, didn't they, as far as, um, what's that movie called? Uh, Merchants of Doubt. Merchants of Doubt, yeah. Do you want to talk through kind of, because there's scientists that come out and say, you're full of it, the consensus is wrong, and there's another side of it, and that climate change or global warming isn't real.
1: Right. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, so the strategy is that in any public debate over policy, especially one that involves science, a good strategy is to argue about the science. And the reason for that is that most people can't follow the argument. Um, they, They find it boring and they just, you know, they see two eggheads arguing about Um, you know, either lung cancer or whether the earth is warming or anything like that. And they just tune it out. They just sort of say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to watch rugby. I'm not going to listen to these eggheads uh, arguing. And so it's a, it's a very successful strategy. If you don't want policy to be implemented, to argue about science, even if the science is well-established and that again, that relates to the role of science in our society, people respect science, And the ability to say the science supports my point is very important. So you want to make sure that the other side can't say that. And so you you hire scientists and you hire PR people. And in the age of the Internet um, and social media, you you hire social media bots to push this alternative narrative that, you know, we don't really understand. Uh, climate change and renewable energy is very expensive. All of these things that are actually not true.
2: I've heard you say by twenty one hundred, people are going to be spending all their money on climate change. So that's so that's literally our children or grandchildren. Can you expand on that and how that will?
1: Sure. So that's not exactly what I said. It's close. Let but let me explain what I what I said and why I why I say that. And that is that if you look at the predictions. Um, for future warming. We're sort of on track for three degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial by 2100. So three degrees of Celsius does not sound like a lot. A lot of your listeners are probably thinking, who cares if the globe warms three degrees Celsius? I mean, yesterday was 10 degrees Celsius cooler and you know, it's summer now, but winter could be 50 degrees Celsius cooler. Three degrees sounds like nothing.
2: It doesn't mean much uh, to me. Yeah, you're right. Yeah,
1: but, but that's not right. Because um, we're talking here not about local temperatures, which do vary a lot. Uh, we're talking about global average temperatures. And when you average over the whole globe, the temperature is very consistent. So if we go back to the last ice age, uh, last glacial maximum about 20,000 years ago, um, much of North America was covered with ice, and Northern Europe. Um, you know, sea levels were 300 feet lower. It looked like a different planet. And if you go and if you ask how much colder was it, it was six degrees Celsius colder. Uh, the, that, when I t- explain that to my students, it blows their minds. I mean, six degrees of global average temperature change will give you an ice age. Now, so when we look at predictions of three degrees of warming, that's half of an ice age. Now, it's going in the opposite direction, obviously. We're, we're going further away from the ice ages. But, um, you know, it's enough to literally remake the planet. I mean, we expect sea levels with three degrees to be, you know, um, tens of meters higher. Now, the good news is it will take a long time for that much sea level rise to occur. But we'll be committed to tens of meters of sea level rise, be I mean, enough to wipe out uh, Florida in the U.S., for example, and and you know it would just it would change the world in in unimaginable ways. And so, uh, what I said, and this is very close to what you said, I said, which is is that there's a potential for people at, at that time to be spending all of their money just trying to stay alive, building seawalls, building new freshwater infrastructure, relocating cities. Um, so. It's not certain. Nobody knows how bad it's going to be. Uh, Economists don't know. Climate scientists don't know. We really don't know. And and the reason we don't know is because we don't really understand how humans are going to respond to these changes in climate. Um, We don't do a great job responding. Oftentimes we build, you know, flood control structures after the flood occurs as opposed to before, even though they knew it was coming before. And so it could be if we do a bad job transitioning, which I think is likely, you know, it's we're going to be much, much poorer because of climate change um, than we would otherwise be. And um, and so uh, that really concerns me because the people watching your shit, listening right now, a lot of them could be alive in 2100. And if they're not alive, their kids are certainly going to be alive. You know, my students could all live well through well into this century. And you know, so this is a problem for the listeners of your show. It's a problem for my students. It's a problem for my kids, and uh, I think people need to take this very seriously.
2: The problem is, I guess, that people actually. I've got a text message that I got from my friend today because I was trying. I was doing a little bit more research on uh, for this show and trying to get people's sort of thoughts on climate change and whether they even cared, because that's half the problem, isn't it? Like, if you, I mean, people were like, yeah. I care about climate change, but what can I do? I'm just going to see if I can find this uh, message from him. Ah, uh, yeah, here we go. I've asked my friend Jim if he cares about climate change. Hello, mate. I do, actually.
0: But I also think that stating the obvious, that if I turn my engine off in traffic or turn a light switch off, having been to Hong Kong and having seen everything else that's going on, that, and again, he might tell you otherwise, that it makes no fucking difference whatsoever when stuff is being pumped into the ocean stuff is being pumped into the atmosphere from these big corporate industrial things that are probably owned by government and I think there could be an element of the earth knows that uh, and there's a natural shift in climate anyway because that's what's happened in recent years like there's always been flooding Uh, there's always been um, forest fires so that's my two-pence worth.
1: So a lot, a lot to unpack there. Uh, let me address the last part first, uh, and that is when he said this all could be natural. This is not natural. So the climate science has spent 40 years studying uh, what we call the detection and attribution problem about why is the globe warming? We're, we're almost 100 percent certain that humans are now the dominant driver of the climate system. And in the last decade or two, an entire new field of research called extreme event attribution has arisen that allows us to come up with statistical statements about the probability of extreme events occurring. And we can say that events like um, Hurricane Harvey, uh, massive rainfall over Houston in 2017, the floods in Germany, um, the heat wave in Europe in 2003, uh, these events would not have occurred or would be very unlikely to have occurred without humans warming the climate so humans are definitely having an effect and and, and i can say that with great confidence um, now his question is his statements about what can we do about it i think is worth discussing at some length because because it's important that people don't get discouraged so, you know i could sort of no, send a note of discouragement like what can i do um, and that's actually the wrong that's the wrong attitude now he he is correct that sort of these, you're not going to, we're not going to solve the problem with these single actions. You know, if you replace all your lights with compact, you know, your incandescent bulbs with compact fluorescence, you turn off the the engine when you're sitting in traffic. Uh, in, in Texas, no one would do that. I, I didn't even know that was a thing, but you could do that, I suppose. And if you did that, that would save a little bit of energy, but that's not going to solve the problem. And he's absolutely right. Uh, individual virtuous actions, while you should do them, because in many cases, they'll save you money, uh, they'll make you healthier, you know, switching, eating less meat will make you healthier, uh, but that's not going to say, but you making these individual choices is not going to solve the problem. You know, the problem will only be solved when we have this large scale shift of our economic system away from burning fossil fuels towards renewable energy, and that requires um, government action. In fact, it requires coordinated government action across the whole globe. So the thing to do, if you want to say I'm only going to do one thing about climate change, uh, that should be to vote for people who care about climate change and have policies to help uh, the economy along in making this transition, because we're already doing that. Wind and solar are already taking over fossil fuels, but not at a, very, not at a rate fast enough to avoid three degrees of warming, the, what we're on track for. We, we need to do it faster. And um, there are a number of reasons why it's not going faster. Uh, but we, if we did have policies to speed it up, that would actually make us richer. The air would be cleaner. I mean, society would benefit from an even faster transition to fossil fuels. So I would tell your friend, uh, vote, you know, and vote for people who support uh, climate policy. That's the single most important thing. And then all the other things, you know, do them, you know, they'll, they'll help him. You know, if he walks, it drives if he, um, you know, cha- you know, uh, adopts a more energy efficient lifestyle, he'll save money and, and he'll help the climate a little bit. But that's not the primary thing. And don't get discouraged. I mean, it's very important for your listeners to not say there's nothing we can do. We can solve this problem. Doesn't mean we will, but we have we still have the ability to do that.
2: I think sometimes the political side of it, the environmental parties can seem a little bit extreme, can't they?
1: Well, you know, that's a um, That's a a strategy is to paint, to to make your opponents in any political debate. You want to make your opponents look foolish, look corrupt, look extreme. You know, um, I don't know. I have to admit, I don't know British politics that well. But in the U.S., you know, they're always trying to paint, you know, uh, Democrats as out of touch liberals. It doesn't matter what the policy is. It could be a policy that 90 percent of the people support. But, you know, you describe it as extreme, you know, it's like in the U.S. gun control. So, you know, something like 85 percent of Americans support background checks before you can buy a gun. Um, And, you know, they can't even get a vote on that in the Senate. And that's because of the rules of the Senate. But, you know, any anybody who suggests we, we implement background checks, which is really just the mildest form of any kind of control. It's these people are trying to take away your guns. They're out of control. Certainly, you're you're correct that people who argue in favor of renewable energy are often portrayed as eco wackos. But but the thing that's important to understand is renewable energy is cheaper than fossil fuel energy renewable. You know, the war in Ukraine, that's fossil fuels are intimately tied up to that. I mean, the U.S. invaded two countries because of fossil fuels. Uh, you know, there's this enormous, you know, air pollution, there's this enormous cost of fossil fuels. If we switch renewables, uh, the economy will be better, the air will be better, we'll have, we'll be more secure. I mean, we, it will be a better world if we make this switch. So don't, don't fall for the line that these people are, you know, eco whack jobs. I mean, it's, it's the, the economically prudent thing to do is to switch to renewable energy.
2: How will we be richer economically? How does it make more sense?
1: Renewables are now the cheapest energy source. If you want to pay the least amount of money for energy, uh, you want wind and solar. That They are the lowest energy energy prices. Now, people, if you say that, the response will often be, well, they're subsidized by the government. Um, and that is true. There are very small subsidies um, for, uh, in the U.S., it varies by country, but in the U.S., there are su- subsidies for wind and solar. They're not very big subsidies, and it might be that the very, very cheapest fossil fuels, barely competitive with renewables, if you take that, if you, if you remove the subsidies. But then you have to say, well, how are fossil fuels subsidized? Fossil fuels are enormously subsidized in our society. In the U.S., there are enormous tax breaks that fossil fuel producers get. In addition, uh, fossil fuels kill millions of people every year. When you buy a gallon of gas or a gallon of petrol for your audience, you only pay the price of the gas. You know, if somebody downwind of your car has a heart attack because of particles that come out of the tailpipe, you don't pay for that. That's a cost that's imposed on all of society. And economists call that an externality. Um, and so there are these enormous external costs, externalities from burning fossil fuels. So air pollution is a big one. Again, it kills millions of people around the world every year. The climate impacts are another one. I mean, it gets hotter. You have to run your air conditioner more. You suffer. It's not as pleasant when it's 100 degrees outside than when it's 90 degrees outside. Uh, That's Fahrenheit. When it's 35 outside, 35 Celsius, it's less comfortable when it's 30. And and then there's the national security implications about it. You know, the fact that, again, that the war in Ukraine is going on right now, and there are high costs to that. Um, And then kind of related to that is the fact that fossil fuel is a globally traded commodity. And what that means is the price of fossil fuels varies, you know, year to year. So right now, natural gas is extremely high. The price of oil is very high, again, because of the war. Um, And there are other things contributing to that, such as we're coming out of COVID. But, you know, Year to year, you get these wild price swings in the in the price of these com- uh, these commodities that we use for energy. And it's impossible to predict what's the price of gas going to be in a year. You know, nobody knows. For an economy, that's really bad. Uncertainty is not your friend. Uh, you want to be able to be able to predict what the price is going to be. In a year. And with wind and solar, you know what the price is gonna be. The price of wind and solar are always zero. And I can so I can tell you exactly what you'll be paying for electricity in a year. Whereas I can't do that with fossil fuels. So there so there are enormous economic costs to using fossil fuels beyond what you pay at the pump or what you get, what bill you get in the mail. Uh, there, are, there are really huge costs. But even without those, uh, wind and solar are, are price competitive with the cheapest fossil fuels at this point.
2: Why not? What what are your thoughts on nuclear plants? Because there's a big stigma about that.
1: So one of the objections I always get when I tell people we we should switch to renewable energy is, uh, but the sun doesn't shine at night, the wind doesn't always blow. And it's like, oh, we never thought of that. You know, we know that renewables are intermittent. And in fact, there's been a huge amount of work that's been done over the last two decades on how you build a climate safe grid uh, that's reliable and doesn't rely on fossil fuel. So climate safe. And so what we the way you do it is you have a grid that's mainly wind and solar. So it's seven, say 75% intermittent wind and solar. And you want to use those as much as possible because they're basically free. The marginal cost of another unit of wind and solar is zero. And so you want to use as much wind and solar as you possibly can. Now, because of the intermittency, though, you have to have some kind of what we call dispatchable power which is power you can turn on and off you need that to counterbalance the intermittency of the renewables and that's i think where nuclear could play a role so nuclear is very expensive so you don't want to have a hundred percent nuclear grid that would be you'd be paying much more for energy and if your goal is to pay as little for energy as possible then you want to rely on solar and wind uh but you do but but nuclear i think could play a role as the the dispatchable part of the grid that counterbalances the intermittency of the wind and the solar. So I do think that despite the high cost, there is a role to play for it. The main problem with nuclear is it's not popular. You know, people don't like it. And so I think you do have to convince people that you do have to convince people to to allow people to build a nuclear power plant near them. And you have to find financing for it. So there are These other issues, but just from an energy climate perspective, I'm happy to have nuclear play a role, a minor role on the grid to help counterbalance the intermittency of wind and solar.
2: What are the main misconceptions you think people get wrong about nuclear?
1: So I think that the concerns with nuclear, there are a couple of them. I mean, there's obviously safety is an issue, as demonstrated by Chernobyl and Fukushima. You know, I don't know if that's a misconception. It's really hard to evaluate the probability of an event like that happening. I mean, you do always hear nuclear engineers say, well, you know, the newest plants are much safer. It has a real titanic ring to it. Like, you know, this ship is unsinkable. On the other hand, you know, climate change is 100% certain to happen. And, you know, there are all these other problems with fossil fuels. So in my view, I think that risk is one that I think is worth taking. You know, the other... Issues with nuclear are things like proliferation. You know, if you build a nuclear plant in your country, then you conceivably can make a weapon out of the spent fuel, either a nuclear bomb or a dirty bomb, which is why we don't want countries like Iran to have nuclear arms. Um, You know, that seems to be mainly a political issue about, you know, if there's a country like that, can you get them to agree to let you reprocess their fuel? Um, you know, let friendly countries like Japan or France talk to Iran and, and, and you be part of their fuel cycle to keep them from diverting stuff for weapons. And then there's just sort of the more generic waste problem. You know, right now in the U.S., we don't have a waste repository. So the waste is sitting at every nuclear plant in these casks um, on site which is not optimal. I mean, they're, they're safe as they are now, but, but you need to come up with some kind of long-term strategy to hold this stuff for tens of thousands of years.
2: Yeah. How much waste does it create?
1: Not, not a huge amount. Um, I mean, I would say, you know, I heard a statistic once that it's something like all of the waste ever created would fit inside a, a football stadium. Not, it's not a lot of waste, uh, but it's very dangerous. And so, you know, even a pound of it could be really bad. So you do have to really keep it carefully contained. And so they do have to find some place to put it. They don't want it, uh, you know, you, you don't want it in 100 years leaching into the water table. So that's, but again, I think this is really a political issue. I think we, we know how to store waste. It's just the problem that people don't really want it around them. And you just have to, you know, the politicians have to figure out a way to solve that.
2: When we talk about windmills isn't there an insane amount of fossil fuels that goes into building those things how much does it take to actually pay for itself you know by its carbon footprint if you like
1: yeah so first of all let me just say i i called them windmills once and i got yelled at they're wind turbines
2: oh wind turbines uh, there you go
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> i um, apologize there there's one important point that you have to make and that is It takes energy to do, to make anything. So, uh, you know, that cup of coffee, that drink of coffee you just had, that took energy. The cup, the coffee was in, took energy to make. This podcast takes energy. Everything takes energy. Energy is the most important thing in the world. If you have energy, you can do anything. And that includes make a wind turbine, takes energy. And and so right now, uh, where's that energy coming from? Well, our grid is primarily fossil fuels. In the U.S., it's 60% fossil fuels. Uh, so it varies from place to place. But if you're going to make a wind turbine, uh, you're going to pull energy off the grid. It's going to be fossil fuels. But if the grid transitions to climate-safe energy, wind and solar, then when you make that wind turbine, there's not going to—you don't need fossil fuels. There's nothing special about fossil fuels and making wind turbines. It's just that you need energy, and right now that's where the energy comes from. So, you know, certainly right now every wind turbine you see was manufactured with fossil fuel energy, but after we transition away from fossil fuels, every wind turbine you see will be made uh, from wind energy. Now, as far as the other question you asked about the emissions um, of, of wind turbines that come today, um, you know, people have done those kind of life cycle analyses, and I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but if you look at the entire life, you know, right now, wind turbines last, uh, the, the lifetime of these wind turbines has been increasing, and they're kind of 30 to 35 years now. And if you look at the total, if you amortize kind of your emissions over the whole lifetime, the emissions are still much, 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 much lower than even the best fossil fuel plant. So there's even if you make use a pile of coal to make the wind turbines, you're still better off from a climate perspective than if you burn that coal to make electricity, you just fed into the grid.
2: Do you have any idea how many wind turbines you'd need to generate the same amount of power as a nuclear power plant? Sure. So...
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so, um, you know, commercial wind turbines now are six or seven megawatts. Um, The average capacity factor, which so the wind doesn't blow all the time. So they're not all generating six megawatts at once. So the average capacity factor might be um, 50%, you know, maybe 40%, but let's say 50%, because it's easier to do the math. So that's about three megawatts on average. Um, and so that and a, a nuclear power plants, maybe a gigawatt, which is a 1000 megawatts. So each wind turbine is three megawatts, you need about 300 of those to give you a gigawatt of power. Now, it's important to understand, though, that you can't really substitute them, because the, the nuclear power plant can generate power all the time, and the solar or, or the wind turbine is intermittent. So, so it's very important for people not to think about these energy sources in isolation, but to think about it as a, as a system, as a grid. And so the question you really should ask yourself is, what mix of energy gives me the lowest cost grid that's reliable? And it turns out to be a grid, as I said before, that's mainly wind and solar, but could have some nuclear on it. As a counterbalance to the intermittency, and that's really the right way to think about it. You don't really think about well, what you know, because you can't really substitute them. You can't. They play different roles on the grid. Where does
2: hydro power come into it? Could that not be the substitute for the intermittent power?
1: Oh, absolutely. So that so hydro is a fantastic source of dispatchable energy. Uh, now the problem with hydro, though, is we've dammed up most of the big rivers already, so there's really limited ability to expand it. And it ge- often generates extremely strong local opposition, because unless you're in China, China can just order millions of people to move when they're going to build a reservoir in a democracy. It's harder to do that. And, and so you have very strenuous local opposition, whereas the support for it is very diffuse and a lot weaker. And so uh, the, the you know, I don't know if you've heard the, if you got if you heard the term NIMBY, not in my backyard. Right. People yeah. Kind of support they support wind and solar as long as they're not anywhere around them. I think hydro is kind of like that. Um, and the other problem with hydro is we're seeing in the Western US right now. So the two biggest freshwater reservoirs in the US are Lake Mead and Lake Powell. They dam the Colorado River in the Western US. They provide a lot of water for Las Vegas and Phoenix and Los Angeles. And they, have, they generate a lot of hydropower, but there's this ongoing drought which has actually lowered the water level in those reservoirs so much that in the next few years, the water level might be below the intake to the hydro uh, hydro's, uh, turbines, which would mean they'd have to stop generating power. And in fact, in some lakes in California, they've already had to stop generating power. No way. So, so you know, in a, in a hotter world uh, where places are aridifying, like the Western U.S., You know, you have to be very careful about sort of projecting out what the availability of hydropower is going to be.
2: You mentioned China there. I've heard they are almost, I don't want to say leading the way, but because of the way that their political system operates, they are, like you said, able to do things on a massive scale without worrying about people's backyards. And they've got those big hydro jams, but they've also they've built a massive solar field as well, haven't they?
1: Yeah, so yeah, so I can give you some numbers that I think might help give you that context. So um, China right now, has about 500 gigawatts of wind and solar power. Now, to give you an idea, the U.S. average power consumption is about 500 gigawatts. So they have essentially a, already have a U.S. of renewable energy, and they plan on adding another 500 gigawatts in the next five years. So they're going to build another U.S. of renewable energy. And I always, I always tell people, you know, we could be the U.S. of renewable energy if we, if we had the political will to do that. I mean you know, we could certainly do that also, but we have not yet. But but so they are massively building renewable energy. Uh, Now, that said, they're also still increasing their fossil fuel consumption because their plan is to peak emissions in 2030, and then go have go to net zero in 2060. And so for the next eight years, their emissions are going to continue to increase, then it'll peak and then go down. But they're building they're clearly on track for that because of how much renewable they're building. So, so you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but they're, they're doing what they basically said they would do.
2: Wow. There is a leaf that we can take out of the Chinese book of energy consumption.
1: Well, you know, I, I, I can tell you a story. Um, so in 2007, I went and I testified in the Texas State House before a subcommittee. And I said, you know, we're at an inflection point. The renewables of the future... And we have a choice about whether, you know, the Texas and the U.S. is going to lead in renewable energy or we're going to follow in renewable energy. And of course, being Texas, they chose to follow. They, you know, they're all in on fossil fuels. They're not going to do anything to help renewables. And so as predicted, the center of mass of renewable energy has all shifted to China. China has invested enormous amounts of money in their production capabilities. If you buy a solar panel, it's probably coming from China. And that, you know, that was just a choice that was made by, you know, that's industrial policy of the U.S. to not jump on renewables. So they, they're, they were smart enough, you know, to see the future and invest in it. And we didn't because that could have been us, but, it, but it's not.
2: The carbon that is actually in the atmosphere now, is there any way to reduce it to prevent global warming? Is there any way to take it
1: out? Yeah. So people talk about that a lot. So a little bit of background. So, so um, when you emit carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, on any time scale we care about, it's essentially in the atmosphere forever. So when you drive, for, I mean, on timescales we care about, our lives, our kids' lives, it's not literally forever. It's, the lifetime, it's like 100,000 years to remove all of it. And so I always tell my students, all right, so if you go to buy a liter of milk, you know, you drive in your car in the U.S. because grocery stores are never near where you live, so you have to drive there. And and so the, you'll probably emit a few pounds of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere when you go get your liter of milk. That carbon's going to stay in the atmosphere for a very long time. It's going to be changing the climate for that period of time. And so it's that once you emit it, it stays in the atmosphere for a very long time. So the question you ask, which is really a good one, is: Is there a way to pull the carbon out of the atmosphere? Uh, because the natural cycles are very slow. And the short answer to that is, there are a lot of people working on it. Uh, That is a really huge uh, area of research. There are some Silicon Valley companies um, that have actually put together, uh, they have already agreed to spend a billion dollars to remove carbon for anybody that can create a method to do it. So, And they did that to try to to try to um, kickstart the market because one of the big problems with getting people to invest if there's no market for what you're making why would anybody invest in it but they said is there is a market we will spend a billion dollars to pull carbon out of the atmosphere if you create a way to do it so a lot of people are working on that that said the scale of carbon removal would have to be immense every year humans emit 40 billion tons that are every year recently, about 40 billion tons. It's been going up. And so that means that we're talking, uh, in order to make a difference, you have to remove billions of tons. That is a lot of carbon. And the infrastructure it would take uh, would be immense. You think about how much infrastructure we have to emit that much carbon, how many cars, how many pipelines, how many drill rigs, how many refineries. It's probably going to take something similar a similar amount of infrastructure to remove that much carbon. I guess I I have two thoughts on it. One, I'm always amazed at how innovative humans are. Look around the world and you see how many problems we've solved. That beforehand, you thought there's no way to solve this and how many, how much development. So I'm optimistic that the market will work and someone will come up with a, a solution to do this. And if they could, That person would be the richest person in the world. That would be an unbelievably valuable invention or development or innovation, being able to pull carbon cheaply, because it's all a question of the the cost. Uh, We can do it now at $1,000 a ton, but that's too expensive. So they need to be able to do it cheaply. So if you could do that, you would be incredibly rich. Uh, So I'm optimistic about human uh, ingenuity, but it's a hard problem. And in the back of my mind, whenever I think someone will develop this, I then think, Uh, It's really a hard problem. So um, now people haven't been working on it very long. So I think that it may be we can develop ways to do it.
2: Sorry about the interruption. Coming up on next week's show is the true story behind the movie The Infiltrator, starring Breaking Bad's Bryan Cranston. Robert Mazur was the undercover operative responsible for laundering money for Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel and the Cali cartel.
0: It's a requirement with U.S. law for the name of the of the undercover agent to be disclosed to defense counsel because they have the right to cross-examine and they have the right to test the credibility of an individual. So they get to investigate the background of uh, of the agents. And not long after they learned who I was, um, I was contacted by agents from two agencies who talked with me about uh, witness testimony that there was a contract on my life. And then right around that same time, there was a NSA, National Security Agency, Foreign Intercept that had picked up communication about a hit squad coming from Mexico to carry out a half million dollar contract. There were a lot of things that were parallel to what the witnesses had said. and
2: So there was a hit squad from Colombia put together to come and kill you? Allegedly. Wow, how was the paranoia? Well, that's coming up next week. Now back to Andrew Diesler. There's an idea I've heard you talk about around fertilizing the ocean to reduce right. the carbon, to bring the carbon out of the atmosphere. Can you talk me through how that works?
1: Yeah, so about 40 years ago, this guy John Martin came up with this idea that if you added iron to the ocean, uh, that iron was the limiting nutrient. It was the, it was the nutrient that controlled how much plankton growth there was. So if you added iron, you would... Uh, you'd have all this phytoplankton growing and then and as a phytoplankton grows that carbon comes basically out of out of the atmosphere it dissolves into the ocean but it comes out of the atmosphere and then if that phytoplankton grew and then something ate it and then you know a fish ate it and then a bigger fish ate that and a bigger fish ate that and then that fish died and its body sank to the bottom of the ocean you would remove the carbon um and you know as a as a, as a hypothesis, it's not a bad one. Um, I think that uh, you certainly could, uh, uh, that could work, but people have done work on that. In fact, I think they even did a field experiment to see if adding iron would actually do what they thought it did. And, and it's underwhelming. I think that's not um, a way to, uh, to pull carbon out of the atmosphere.
2: What about planting more trees? Because that seems to be the common thing. Is that the solution to the problem?
1: Yeah, so trees are the thing everyone looks at because you, know, you have this natural thing that pulls carbon out of the atmosphere and it does, you know, does it with no, with essentially no input. You plant, a, you plant a seed and you come back you know, a couple years later and you have a tree and all of the carbon in the tree came from the atmosphere. So the trees are pulling, a growing tree is pulling a ton of carbon, uh, tons of carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, the problem with trees, uh, let, let me say I, I'm in favor of trees, I love trees, but, the, but as a carbon sink, as a place to store carbon, trees are not great because they're not stable for long periods. So as an example, imagine you plant a forest, the forest grows up, it pulls, you know, tens of millions of tons of carbon out of the atmosphere, and then you have a drought and the entire forest burns. All that carbon's back in the atmosphere, essentially didn't do, it, it did essentially nothing. So uh, when we look at places to remove uh, carbon, we look at places to put the carbon, it's got to be into a reservoir that's stable for thousands of years. If it's not stable for for very long times, then there's really no point to sequestering it.
2: Replanting a lot of the Amazon, would that not be a good place to do that, though? Because it doesn't really get droughty there, does it? Or does it?
1: Oh, I think it could in the future. In fact, I think there are a lot of people are concerned that the Amazon is not going to stay um, the Amazon as the climate warms. Uh, that's actually one of the, if you look, if you talk to scientists about sort of scary tipping points, that's one of them. Certainly there are lots of benefits to growing trees. As I said I'm pro tree. I think you definitely, um, you know, when forests burn down, replanting is great. But um, unless you're sort of committed to um you know doing that across the whole planet and i mean it, it just it just becomes a very hard problem and the other thing to realize is that um uh you know if you ask the question how many trees do i have to plant to pull a billion tons out of the atmosphere a billion additional tons because if you replant a forest all you're doing is pulling the carbon out that was in the forest that then got released to the atmosphere you're not making a net decrease but if you want to if you want to increase the reduction of CO2 in the atmosphere, pull more out, you have to say, well, how much land area do I have? Do I have enough land area if I convert grassland to trees? Um, do I have enough land area to do that? And the answer is, it's very it's very questionable whether we actually even have enough land area to convert to additional forests uh, to pull out kind of the scale we need to remove a large fraction of, of human emissions. Certainly, you could, you could do, you can make a contribution to it, but it's a hard problem. I don't think trees... Trees are not the solution to climate change. Trees are great, but for other things, for hammocks, for relaxing, for aesthetics, not for solving, not for storing carbon.
2: I was playing golf with a guy over the weekend, and he sells carbon credits. And I was like, well, how, do, how does that even work? Like, what is that? Because it's obviously quite a new industry. And yeah. the way he explained it was like, you might have a place like Papua New Guinea, and the, uh, it's in their interests to look after their forest or replant the forest or look after all the trees if you've got an airline that offsets their carbon emissions by saying okay well we we produce this much carbon but we invest in these trees to make sure we're offsetting our carbon footprint are you are you in favor of carbon credits is, is do you think that's a, a viable way to help with the problem
1: I guess I have two thoughts on that. From a, a purely economic standpoint, you can reach emissions reductions most cheaply if you're able to shift the reductions to places where um, the reductions can be made most cheaply. So you take an airline, it's really hard for an airline to reduce their emissions. I mean, you know, what are they gonna do? We don't, they really don't have any choice. So really the only way that they can reduce is uh, any kind of reasonable cost is to do something like this to buy someone else's reduction. And so this allows uh, you know the people in, in Indonesia or New Guinea, wherever, you know, they were gonna they were gonna cut down the forests, but because of the payments they're getting from the airlines, that, that actually is more profitable than cutting down the forest. So they're gonna protect the forest. So in that case, you do end up with a net uh, a net reduction of carbon in the atmosphere and it's done much more cheaply than it would be if you force the airline to do the reduction. So in economics parlance, uh, you're shifting the emissions reductions to the lowest marginal cost emitters. Um, but uh, the problem with that is that there's a lot of scope for fraud in carbon credits. Uh, so, for example, let's say the people in New Guinea weren't going to cut down the forest anyway. They never had the intention of doing it. They love the forest. So why would they, you know, and and they're not going to get any money for it. You know, the people were not going to pay them anything worthwhile. So they didn't plan on doing anyway. But nonetheless, they went to the airline and said, hey, you pay us. We won't cut this down. And so they Uh, get paid and they were never going to cut it anyway. Uh, And so I think that uh, carbon credits are really one of the most difficult parts of climate policy. You definitely want to have some kind of mechanism for people who it's very expensive for them to reduce their emissions. They should be able to go somewhere else and buy emissions from people who can make it more cheaply. But you have to be very careful uh, that there's no fraud in it because it's just the Wild West if you don't have mechanisms in there to ensure that the reduction, the, the, the avoided emissions are legitimate.
2: It's almost like if you have a forest, you could hold the, the hold the forest to ransom. You could be like, I'll cut them down if you don't give me X, Y, Z. Oh, yeah. no, are.
0: that's yes.
1: uh, Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, that would probably be a pretty effective uh, hostage if you had the Amazon, you're holding the Amazon hostage.
2: What about battery powered cars? How much uh, are they going to play in reducing global warming?
1: Well, so to solve the climate problem, you essentially have to electrify everything. That's clearly the cheapest cost way to solve the climate problem. So essentially everything... Um, Or almost everything has an electric component, you know, stoves, ovens, cars, you know, there's there's versions that burn fossil fuels, there's versions that run on electricity. And so essentially, we need to electrify everything, the heating in people's houses, uh, all that stuff. So uh, battery powered cars are going to play a key role in um, in solving the climate problem, you know, we need people to stop burning gasoline and move over to electricity. And, And once the grid cleans up which is happening once you get a all climate safe grid then the cars will have no emissions associated with
2: them how do you get around the the production of those batteries because because it's quite a carbon intensive process It's more a more carbon intensive process than creating a petrol or diesel car isn't it
1: yeah that's right so i guess there are, there are two responses to that i mean the first one is, is kind of what i said earlier about wind turbines which is right now all uh, you know a lot of our power comes from fossil fuels so if you build an, an electric vehicle a lot of the power that was used to make it will go will come from fossil fuels and and be associated with emissions uh, but in the future as the grid cleans up the um, the amount of emissions associated with that will go down and said, eventually you'll get to a you know 100% clean economy where the steel's produced without fossil fuels and the electricity doesn't come from fossil fuels and then there won't be any emissions mm-hmm. associated with the ev at all now if you look right now people have done what they call these life cycle assessments which is not just looking at any one individual but you look at the entire life cycle of the car from making the car uh to driving the car and then eventually recycling the car at the end And if you look at the total life cycle emissions they're about uh, one third of the life cycle emissions from a regular comparable internal combustion engine car so uh, and that depends to some extent on what country you're in, depends on what your grid is, uh, what, what the energy source of your grid is, et cetera, things like that. But for the U.S., at least that's the number. It's about one third. So driving an EV, even if you're plugging it into a grid that's powered by coal, is still going to be uh, better for the environment and better for the climate than driving an internal combustion engine car.
2: Looking at the overall picture, especially with energy, how easy do you think this is going to be to change? Because the people that hold the power seem to be the ones that have got the most benefit from it not changing. So how how easy is it going to be to actually stop what seems to be an inevitable global warming crisis?
1: Yeah, well, I don't, this way, I don't think technically it's going to be that hard to stop. Um, I think we we can easily get our emissions down to, 20 percent of what they are today um, without too much trouble Um, just with wind and solar taking over and you know technologies that we basically have now the last 20 percent is going to be a lot harder Um, and this is all just technically i think to me the real problem is the political problem it's not the technical problem it's how do you get governments to do this i mean they're so afraid of 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 people seeing the prices going up, even if even temporarily, and even if people are saving money elsewhere. I mean, let me just give you some, give you an example. I'll I'll make up the numbers, but to give you an example of what I'm talking about, imagine that, um, you know, there was a city and 10,000 people a year died from fossil fuel, air pollution. And, and that would be imposing this big economic cost because those people, you know, when someone dies, you lose their productive value, you know, the family's upset, you you know, you have to train someone new to do their job, you know, there's this loss in productivity, it costs money, in addition to the sort of the human tragedy of it, uh, which is obviously large. Um, And so, and so, you know, you might lose a significant amount of money just from air pollution. So let's say, okay, we can replace the fuel that kills people with another fuel, and it might be a dollar more expensive uh, at the pump, or, uh, you know, you might pay a dollar more for it. And that dollar more might be a lot less than, the cost of the air pollution. The air pollution might be two dollars, and by and by increasing a dollar, you're still saving money. You're still better off. The economy is better off. But people would hate that because they don't see the cost of people dying. They don't get it. They don't see that on their bill. Mm-hmm. It's making them less wealthy, but it's this invisible cost. Whereas the cost they're paying when they get the bill, they actually see. Wow, this costs me a dollar more. That sucks. I hate this. And so politicians, even ones that want to do the right thing are up against, um, you know, up against this, this perception problem that, you know, most people don't kind of see the bigger picture. They just see what's on their bill. And I, I'm not criticizing people. People are busy. Uh, you know, uh, they don't have time to spend all of their time like I do researching the issue. So, but it's kind of human nature. That's really kind of what we're up against. And then you add to that the fact that there are people out there who will take that and really misrepresent it for their own political gain. So politicians on the other side will talk about how you're raising the price for consumers. It's killing jobs. You know, neither of those are true. Um, you You may be raising the price right here, but you're saving them money because the economy's better, because you're not killing people. And that's actually increasing jobs. But, you know, that doesn't stop politicians from attacking the people who are trying to do the right thing based on the fact that the price they pay in this one part has gone up, even though they're saving money elsewhere.
2: But some people will just say, "Say that we'll adapt." Is that a valid argument? That we'll just adapt to this this crisis and we'll fix whatever problems come our way, kind of like we did with coronavirus, finding a vaccine, or whatever other disasters have arrived. We'll just adapt and be able to survive to whatever situation comes up.
1: Yeah, well, that's a good question. So certainly we will adapt. So uh, you know, people aren't going to sit there. You know, if you're a farmer and all your crops fail, you're not going to just sort of keep planting those same crops. You'll either, you'll change your crops, you'll add irrigation, you'll, you'll, or you'll just sell, you'll go out and you'll just say, I'm going to sell the ranch and I'm going to move somewhere else. Um, but the thing, or, you know, if you live in Miami, you know, you'll build a seawall or, you know, you have the Thames barrier, you know, you build a bigger barrier if the sea keeps rising. Uh, but the thing about it is that all costs money. And when I taught you remember, I talked about earlier about how my Mm -hmm. worry is that people will be spending all of their money just staying alive. That's what I was talking about. You know, if you're spending all of your money building seawalls, you're spending all of your money adding air conditioners to houses. You know, right now in a lot of places in the U.S., people don't air condition their house because they don't have to, but they're going to have to add air conditioners. And that's thousands of dollars. Then you have to run. You have to pay for the electricity to run the air conditioner. Um, And, you know, all that makes people poorer. So I think what, and no one has any idea how much all that's going to cost. It could be, you know, impoverishes us, even rich countries. It could be maybe, maybe it won't be that bad. I mean, nobody really knows. And so, you know, the way I kind of look at it is you have this one path where we rely on adaptation. That's a huge risk. You have this other path where we switch renewable energy, and that's really not a risk. We know how to do that. We are, we know what the cost is going to be basically, because we know how much renewables cost now, and we're pretty sure in the future, it's going to cost less, because of, of we're just the prices just go down, the more you build stuff. And it just seems like it's a much less risky approach, and probably going to be cheaper for us to just switch to renewable energy. And if you do that, you not only avoid the climate impact, you avoid the air pollution deaths, you avoid the national security implications, you know, nobody ever that no wars have ever been started over the price of wind and solar. (laughs) And, you know, so, so you avoid, you avoid those things also. So adaptation, certainly something we will do to the extent that we can't avoid climate change, but our idea that we should rely on that as our only policy, I think is crazy.
2: Andrew Dizler, thank you very much for your time.
1: Oh, thank you. It's been a great conversation.
2: Yeah, it really has. And where can, where can people find out more about what you do and, And how they can get involved.
1: Um, I would say follow me on Twitter, uh, at Andrew Dessler.
2: Very good. And thank you very much for listening. And I know I say it every week, but by sharing this podcast, whether it's with your mates or on social media, makes
1: a massive difference. I hope you've enjoyed the episode.